Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Happy New Year, everyone. 2016 is gone. 2017 is here and on the line with me to preview the big stories, ideas, trends, crises, and provocations that will set the agenda at the United Nations and beyond is Richard Gowan. He's a fellow with the European Council on Foreign Affairs and a regular guest of this very podcast. We have a lively conversation about Trump's relationship with the UN, the new Secretary General, and much more. We recorded this conversation in late December, before the big vote on Israel's settlements, into which the president-elect weighed on Twitter, so that vote does not factor into this conversation. But I would say that the big implication of that vote is that it makes the UN more vulnerable to moves by the incoming Congress to restrict or undermine U.S. support for the UN, including the possible withholding of funding. If you want to read my full thoughts on that, check out UN Dispatch. For now, though, here is Richard Gowan and I chatting about the big stories at the UN and around the world in 2017. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I have a fear that... 2017 is going to be a year of crises at the UN. And I think that we can state with some certainty that a couple of fragile countries that are already on the Security Council's agenda are going to turn into very, very big tests indeed for the Security Council, uh, for the new Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and for the Trump administration. Um, at the top of that list is Syria. I think the the overarching question next year is going to be whether the UN can come to some sort of final settlement in Syria after the fall of Aleppo. But I would also highlight the risks of a, a major new spike in violence in South Sudan, shaking the organization. And I fear that there's a very good chance of violence increasing in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, South Sudan and the DRC are long-term peacekeeping challenges for the UN, but there is a real risk that increased violence in one or both of them will uh, put peacekeepers in the line of fire and put the UN's credibility in the line of fire um, during a very uncertain period in global affairs. Mm -hmm. On on South Sudan, I should say that we have had a, a previous episode about the unfolding situation in South Sudan, which, you know, could lead to genocide or at least mass atrocity events. Many analysts are, are concerned. And the question is, how will the, the UN respond with, with a large peacekeeping presence in the country uh, that may not have the kind of political backing that peacekeeping needs in order to be successful? 
Um, and you know, to that end, you know, one of the big stories that I will be following in the the coming year is how changes at the Security Council will affect the UN's work on the ground around the world. So depending on what happens in the French election, we could be having a, a member of uh, the Security Council, the Permanent Five, be sort of all illiberal-ish leaders. Um, you, have, you have the Trump administration, you know, Theresa May's administration may be the most liberal of them all. Um, if, if Marine Le Pen wins uh, the presidency of, of, of France, and I wonder the extent to which a composition of the Security Council that is kind of right-leaning, kind of insular, may affect the, the UN's work around the world? I mean, it's extraordinarily difficult to, to calculate. I would say that if you look at a situation like South Sudan, I mean, that is a, uh, that's a country where two members of the Security Council uh, really uh, dominate discussions, and they are the US and China. Um, and in the past, both Republican and Democratic administrations have uh, tried to get the um, uh, the UN to take a tough line in, in the Sudan. So I, I don't think that um, we should presume that the arrival of a Trump administration is really going to fundamentally alter um, the, the Security Council's attitude. But much more generally, I think that uh, the shifting composition of the P5 uh, will shake up uh, diplomacy at the UN. Some people are looking at President Trump uh, and hoping that he will promote rapprochement or, or détente with, with Russia in the Security Council. That's certainly possible. That might open up uh, avenues for deal-making over Syria, which uh, would be of interest. Even if Marine Le Pen does not win in France, you're likely to see François Fillon uh, emerge as the French president, and he is someone else who is very much in favor of cooperating with Russia. So after a period in which relations between the West and Russia and the Security Council have been very bad, uh, you, may, uh, you may see an overall improvement. Mm -hmm. But we don't know what that really means in, uh, in practical terms. Uh, does it mean that there is likely to be a large UN peacekeeping presence deployed into Syria? Probably not. Um, but does it mean that you're going to get a, a lasting Syrian peace deal? Possibly, but a lot of the tensions that have riled the Security Council will, will continue to be there. So we, you know, we could see a deal between Trump and, and Putin over Syria, but that, that deal could fall apart. And, and it's worth maybe speculating. Um, and, and again, it's still speculation, but grounded yeah, everything, in some... Everything we're yeah, talking right now is speculation. But grounded, grounded in, in fact and expertise that um, re the real rivalry uh, at the Security Council may shift from the United States v. Russia to USA v. China. Um, and we were seeing, you know, whereas historically China and Russia typically kind of had each other's back when it came to disputes with the West that may, may fracture, um, if the kind of, you know, assertiveness or hostile rhetoric between the Trump administration and Beijing continues, uh, a pace. And I wonder how that may manifest it itself in, in sort of view on the ground operations or discussions at the Security Council, if at all. I think that's an enormous risk. The The Chinese have already become notably more assertive 
in the UN over the last couple of years. And we've seen uh, some ongoing clashes between China and the US over how to deal with crises like South Sudan and Burundi in particular. And those have made uh, UN action on the African crises uh, less effective. But nonetheless, the Obama administration has done a pretty good job of working with China at the UN. And actually, the Americans have been quite pleased with the way that Beijing has invested more in UN peacekeeping, uh, is starting to invest more money in post-conflict development programming. Now, that's all very nice, but it could fragment and disappear if you have a, uh, a real breakdown of relations between China and the Trump administration over Taiwan and other Asian security issues. I, I fear that issues like South Sudan could become collateral damage, actually, to a, a major Sino-US split, because rather than uh, rather than merely uh, push back against uh, the US and the Security Council, the Chinese could uh, harden their line and start vetoing uh, resolutions left, right, and center as part of a broader uh, backlash against the um, uh, mm -hmm. the new administration's position. It, it, is, it is a real risk. And because we have such little idea of what Trump's actual mm -hmm. intentions are, um, I, I doubt that I doubt that the Chinese uh, diplomats in New York know what they're going to be doing in, in three to six months. See, I just can't imagine that South Sudan is going to register at all in the Trump administration's radar. I mean, you know, you have the, it, you know, while it is true, as you said, that the, the George W. Bush administration was kind of keenly invested in the Sudans and, and helped secure the peace accord that led to South Sudan becoming its own country, the um, and, and also that the Obama administration with top players in the Obama administration have major equities in South Sudan. It just seems that it's something that at least as the administration is taking shape, that they could really care less about. And I wonder if that is more going to be sort of symptomatic or part of a larger trend of these kind of second tier or third tier issues that depend on American global leadership to not descend and spiral out of control will in fact spiral out of control because the uh, administration in DC just doesn't care one way or the other about the outcome. Yeah, and, and on top of that, we have an incoming U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, who in many ways, actually, I think is quite promising. She's ambitious. Uh, she's, uh, she's clearly a talented politician, but she doesn't have uh, foreign policy experience. And more, more particularly, she doesn't have any experience relating to crisis management in Africa. You know, mm -hmm. in obvious contrast to Susan Rice and Samantha Power during mm -hmm. the Obama administration. And, and it's worth and pointing that like 70% of what the UN does, they do in Africa. So having Africa expertise is very much a, a, a key to being like a successful diplomat at the UN. Exactly. And this is why I say that I fear the crises are going to shape the agenda, because I, I worry that we're going to see violence pretty early in, um, uh, in the year in places like South Sudan and the Congo. Uh, you're going to have an incoming uh, Secretary General, who is well informed about those places, mm -hmm. but will be putting together his administration, mm -hmm. and you will have uh, you will have a U.S. ambassador who will be racing to play catch up on the politics of Juba and Kinshasa, and she will be backed by uh, a new team in Washington that, as you say, probably hasn't devoted 
20 seconds of thought to, to African conflict management yet. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's in those conditions that a real, um, uh, a real breakdown uh, of UN diplomacy and UN peacekeeping uh, is possible. And you can sort of imagine really very large-scale killing taking place while the Security Council is just sort of spinning in a directionless fashion. Uh, and that would, you know, that would leave uh, an extremely severe stain on, mm-hmm. on the organization and on the the new U.S. administration's credibility at an early stage. Now, the one, I think, buffer against this scenario might be Antonio Guterres himself, right? I mean, he is, is someone who, you know, unlike the possible makeup of the new Security Council, is, you know, a political progressive. Uh, is someone who has demonstrated like a commitment to humanity, does have expertise, geopolitical expertise, expertise in Africa, expertise in the UN system. So to the extent that there might be a, a buffer uh, against these situations kind of spiraling out of control without much attention on them, it, it may be be him. Yes, I think uh, a lot of diplomats are currently placing... Uh, a lot of hope. In I am. I am placing all my <laughs> hope for the next four to eight years in Antonio Guterres. That's it. I'm, I'm all in. I got nothing and, else. I, I do think it's good that we have a, a fresh um, Secretary General and one who, in contrast to Ban Ki-moon, uh, you know, does have a sort of instinctive sense of, of crisis management and how you deal with conflicts and humanitarian problems. And the question is, not is Guterres competent to deal with this sort of crisis, he certainly is. But will he be able to get a hearing in in Washington? Mm-hmm. And I see two two potential ways forward. I think one is that Guterres will talk to President Trump at some point. As I understand it, uh, they haven't had any contact to date. And the sort of the split between Trump, the uber capitalist. And Guterres, the old-style socialist, will um, prove to be irreconcilable, and that Trump will actually uh, view Guterres with a bit of bit of suspicion. That's a negative scenario. The, the positive scenario is that um, Trump, who, after all, has shown a lot of ideological flexibility, will see in Guterres an ally and understand that uh, he needs to have a fixer, a secretary general, who can help him out not only in South Sudan or, or DRC, which are hardly priorities for Trump, um, but in Syria. And I think the really big question, uh, although we've been focusing on Africa for most of this conversation, is what is the UN's future role in Syria uh, if there is a, uh, a US-Russia deal um, over the conflict that would presumably keep Assad in power? And I think Guterres is probably spending a lot of his time trying to sort of think out the various options he he can offer um, the Security Council for for, for a post-conflict role um, mm-hmm. in in Damascus and, and more widely in Syria. Mm-hmm. That's actually that that that's a very very important point. That you know, if the UN does take on some sort of important post-conflict role, as it sort of typically does after conflicts end around the world. I mean, it's sort of like a usual role for the UN to play. Although the circumstances around Syria are just particularly you know violent and, and awful and unstable. But you know, it is worth saying that when these kinds of conflicts end, when there is a negotiated end to 
conflicts, the UN is often called in to sort of help secure the peace and rebuild post-conflict countries. It's sort of what the UN does best, but they only do it best if they have political support to to achieve those those aims. Yeah, and people are looking at Syria and they're saying, you know, we've had five years of, of failed UN diplomacy uh, over over Syria now. I mean, the UN's reputation is, is very low in the country, both with um, pro, pro-government and anti-government elements of the population. So this is not going to be an easy, uh, an easy test case for Guterres and, and the UN more generally. But there is also a sense that if it were possible to get some sort of peace in large parts of the country, even if there's ongoing conflict in certain areas involving the Islamic State, uh, then the UN humanitarian agencies, the UN development agencies may need to be brought in to, to help manage the reconstruction process. Now, that would be very difficult operationally because mm-hmm. I, I think that if the UN is seen to go in uh, to support a peace deal that is very favorable to Assad, then there will be a lot of insurgents and terrorists who will treat the UN as a, a legitimate target. Mm-hmm. And talking to UN officials, uh, people are starting to remember Baghdad in 2003 when the UN went into assist the U.S. after the fall of Saddam Hussein. And uh, tragically, uh, a truck bomb destroyed uh, the U.N. The UN headquarters and killed uh, a significant number of personnel, including some very well-respected senior U.N. leaders. Uh, so something similar would be quite possible in Syria. And then there's also the moral question. Is it really palatable? Is it is it really tenable for the UN to help rebuild order around um, Bashar al-Assad? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people would say no. Um, I don't think that if Ban Ki-moon was staying in office, that he actually he could sign off on those proposals because he has been personally uh, very critical of Assad. However, Guterres you know, is a new face and he may be able to make compromises and he may think they are necessary compromises mm-hmm. uh, that Ban could not make. Um, so I would offer maybe one other key variable that might determine or at least influence uh, U.S. relationship with the United Nations is what happens with, with John Bolton. Um, as we're speaking now, you know, a secretary of state has been named. There was rumors that Bolton may be a deputy secretary of, of state. If he is confirmed into that role or into a top role in the State Department, I would imagine that U.S. cooperation relationship with the U.N. would be fundamentally altered uh, from how it, it has been been in in the past, even from how it was when he was the ambassador to the United Nations. I mean, he is someone who is just kind of like a hardcore ideologue uh, and would use his power and his influence to gut the UN and to, you know, really diminish uh, America's role in the UN and the the whole US-UN relation. I mean, 
at least when he was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., there were kind of higher authorities that could be called upon to rein him in. I mean, I, I, from my own reporting at the time, back in 2005, I, I reported the story that, you know, when things got really bad, Kofi Annan would just call up Condoleezza Rice uh, to get her to rein in Bolton. But it imagined that there's probably no higher authority upon which, say, Guterres might be able to to call, especially if, if Bolton is in a position like Deputy Secretary of State. So that's something I, I think really may be a key determinant of the future of, of U.S. cooperation with the United Nations. I, I agree. And um, I think actually two or three days after the uh, surprise election results, I, I wrote a piece saying that we would see the return of Boltonism to the U.N. Uh, I think that if Bolton is sitting in New York fulminating against uh, the U.N., then Haley is going to be put in a very difficult position, even though she will technically be a cabinet-level appointee. Because Haley doesn't know the UN, she will be learning the ropes, and there will be constant messages flowing from Washington, uh, from Bolton, um, telling her that she needs to uh, close down this program or, or block that initiative. Mm-hmm. And Bolton does know the UN. This is one of the reasons oh, yeah. he is such a, a scary figure for people like us, which is that he's not some sort of fringe lunatic in the depths of Montana talking about, about black helicopters. He is actually someone who really uh, has a pretty sharp knowledge of the UN system and knows where its weaknesses lie. Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, lots of reasons to fear Bolton. That said, um, if there's one institution Bolton hates more than the UN, it's the State Department. If you read his uh, his memoirs surrender yeah. is not an option oh i have a, i have a copy i have the review copy still on my desk um well i i i, I suspect that, you know if you if you do recall it you'll you'll remember that while he has a lot of nasty things to say about the un he's equally critical of yes. career u.s diplomats and i i wonder whether uh if bolton is given a senior position in washington uh he won't actually devote most of his time to to beating up on state rather than beating up on the UN, which he has you know he has done in the past. Mm-hmm. One one thing I'd add uh, when you said there was one decisive factor, I was expecting you to say um, something else, and that's climate change. Yeah. And um, you know we we came into this conversation looking at crises, and obviously the number one question on diplomats' minds in New York is is how Trump will affect the Security Council. But an equally big question is will Trump take steps to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Change Treaty? Or will he at least take a lot of steps to to weaken the legitimacy and weaken the implementation of the Paris Treaty? My suspicion is that he won't go all out to undercut the treaty immediately, but I think he will take a lot of steps to um, to weaken it. And that will have a very, very serious effect on UN diplomacy more generally, because uh, Paris is is seen and is rightly seen as the biggest single multilateral success of recent years. If that starts to fall apart, then uh, I think you're going to see a sort of a very general loss of trust um, towards the US, but across the UN system more more generally that uh, that could, could have a very broad impact indeed. And and this kind of goes back to something I've I've been saying on on other podcast episodes that it seems to me one of the defining features of world affairs in the era of Trump will be how other countries realign in the face of un 
predictability in in world affairs, but also in the in in the face of a a sort of um, cessation of U.S. leadership on on issues like climate change or on issues like you know UN peacekeeping. How does the rest of the world reorganize and reorient itself when the United States starts to cede the leadership roles that it has historically and across you know different you know presidencies uh, assumed? I think that's that's a huge question, and um, climate change is a very significant test because here here is an issue where there is an alternative leader to the U.S., and that is China. And you can imagine a situation where uh, the Trump administration de facto walks away from Paris. It doesn't really matter if it kills the treaty or, or not. Um, and the Chinese um, the Chinese step up and say no. Um, uh, we want this, you know. We want this framework for fighting climate change, and we will, we will effectively act as the, the guarantor of the the treaty. Um, you talk to UN officials, you talk to U- European diplomats. You'll find there are a lot of people who are placing a lot of hope in, in Beijing on on this issue. Um, so that could really represent a very significant shift in how uh, the international community um, deals with global challenges. Equally, uh, we hope that China would play that role, but um, Beijing might be much more focused on uh, confronting the U.S. over Taiwan and would sort of leave aside global issues to focus on regional and um, uh, and U.S. affairs. So it's it's highly unpredictable. Um, finally, Richard, any under the radar issues uh, you think we should keep our eye out uh, for in in the coming year? Any any under the radar global issues? And as you an- make your answer, I'll, I'll try to think of of mine. I, good lord! I mean, yeah. I, I don't think um, uh, I don't think anyone uh, in the foreign policy business should should make any predictions with any degree of confidence um at uh at the moment um uh, i think the one thing that we know i think one thing that we we know will have an impact on the evolution of the international system uh is uh, what happens in europe even without a le pen victory in france i think we're going to see um a a very very difficult year for for european countries um, if there is a new upsurge in, in refugees out of uh, Syria at any point, I just don't know if the EU has the coherence to to handle that. And so, I think if you if you care about the future of multilateralism, you need to become a bit of an expert in French, French electoral politics and also German electoral politics, because um, the future of the French presidency, but also the future of uh, Chancellor Merkel, will will have a very significant impact on Europe's role to play any uh, uh, any significant part in the world. Um, coming back to the UN system itself, uh, one one question I hear increasingly about Trump is is what he will do to the UN, not in New York, but in Geneva. And it's notable that during the American election campaign, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Prince Zaid of Jordan, was directly personally critical of Trump and mm-hmm. called, called Trump internationally dangerous. And I know that UN officials in Geneva are beginning to wonder whether uh, Trump may not um, 
choose to target Zaid, try and stop him winning a second term, and perhaps even more generally, uh, pull the U.S. out of the, the U.N. human rights uh, system, uh, which is something that the President Bush, to some extent, did back in uh, back in the last decade. Mm-hmm. And so, I think uh, I think a big crisis in Geneva over the future of the Human Rights Council and, and the UN human rights architecture more generally is um, uh, is quite likely to. And, and you know, you see there is a, a sort of like a feature of Republican politics uh, is, is that, you know, if a UN official goes after one of their own, they go harder after that UN official. You can go to, let's say, Mohamed Al-Baradai, the, the now Nobel Peace Prize winning director general of the IAEA um, was was undermined by you know by Bolton was and 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 other Republicans when he was critical of the intelligence uh, about uh, Iraq and similarly more more notably Kofi Annan was the focus of his you know oil for food witch hunt that was stirred up on, on Capitol Hill as well for his criticism uh, against the Bush administration's march to war in Iraq so yeah that's that's a I think a really important point that you know some of these key UN officials, if they speak too loudly uh, against Trump, may in fact find their jobs in, in jeopardy. Yeah, and it, it would also present a big dilemma for Guterres. I mean, Guterres could find himself stuck between uh, making overtures to to the Trump administration, trying to find some sort of modus vivendi with the Trump administration, and then suddenly having to decide whether to defend the High Commissioner for Human Rights from from very personal, very brutal attacks from from Washington. Um, that will only add to his his burden. Uh, it actually ties into another interesting source of gossip in in New York, which is oh, do um, tell who who will Guterres actually appoint um, as his main uh, as his main advisors? Um, will he largely surround himself with Western officials, or will he? appoint a, a sort of a less traditional array of senior political advisors. There's a, a lot of rumors that he may, for example, create a new uh, a new post of a sort of top-level counterterrorism official in, in the UN system, and he might even offer that to a Russian mm-hmm. um, uh, as part of his, his bargain with, with Moscow to get the job. Um, will China... Uh, be given a, a senior role in the UN peacekeeping department. That's something else we've been hearing a lot about. And more generally, um, there's a feeling that Guterres may reach out to um, uh, to more non-Western um, uh, advisors, that he may bring in more African and Asian advisors at senior levels than, than his predecessors. And so you could, you know, you could be seeing some quite significant changes in the in the makeup of the top level of the UN. Um, and you know all this at the same time that a U.S. administration is uh, uh, is deciding whether it wants just to kick the U.N. hard or, or just kick the U.N. sort of gently. Alrighty, thank you all for listening. Got some great episodes on the horizon, so do stay tuned and, and stick with us. As always, if you are new to the podcast, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives or get in touch with me. If you're a regular listener, thanks for listening regularly. I, I appreciate it. Let's take this podcast to new heights in 2017. All right, bye.